All right. Uh, welcome to the Anti-Religious Era Show. My name is Brian Garlock. This is our live Bible Q&A. Appreciate you tuning in today. If you have a Bible question, you can email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com. Again, that's questions at answeringreligiouserror.com. Or you can private message us on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash answeringreligiouserror. We do encourage you that if you do comment on the video that you go to either our YouTube channel or our Facebook page. That's the best way to make sure that we see your comment or email us. Um, you can also, if you want to come on the show and talk to us, you can do that. The instructions for that is in the video description on YouTube and Facebook. Just follow those instructions and you can come on screen with us and you can talk. If you don't want to be seen, we can make sure it's just the audible only, uh, audio only, and uh, and you can uh you can challenge us. You can ask your question. We can go back and forth with you. We, we'd encourage you to do that. Spend some time with us on the show. Again, this is our live Bible Q&A. We go live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. So if we don't get to your question today, we'll do our very best to do so next week. Gentlemen, it is good to see all of you today. How are you doing? Fantastic, Fantastic Brian. Great to have you back in good form. You're in good form. Except for the uh, producer messed me up on the intro. He did, he did a little short, so I, I didn't know I was ready to go yet. Hey, hey, you, you, you handled it. They threw you, you they threw you a curveball, and you just went with it. Well, he's going to get a pay cut, so he, he doesn't know that yet, but he is. All right, we got Bob, who should be coming on a little bit late, um, so we may have one more join us. If not, it's just going to be us four, but that's good. We're going to be uh, having a great show today. Let's uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. And uh, Brian Haynes, why don't you uh, why don't you do that for us? Yeah, would you join me in prayer, Most Holy God and Father in Heaven? We thank you for opportunities such as this, where we can come together and we can uh, break open in the bread of life and we can partake of this wonderful feast that you have given us in your Word. Father, we pray that we accurately handle these things, that we rightly divide your truth, and that we are faithful to make application of the things that you have said in our life. Help us to walk by faith, knowing that this faith comes from your word and that the faith that uh, comes from your word must be acted upon and carried out in our lives. We're so very grateful to have the technology, the ability, the time, and the uh, effort of others uh, to have these moments. In the name of Jesus, we give thanks. Amen. Amen. I do want to say for our audience uh, members last night, for last night's show, we were having some technical difficulties. And so if you did not get to watch last night, uh, it is on the podcast. The audio is. I'm not sure if the video works. Um, it may work on YouTube, but I'm not sure if it works on Facebook just yet. I know they were trying to fix that. So uh, for those who did tune in yesterday, uh, be sure to check us out on our podcast uh, as well as on YouTube. All right. Uh, before we begin with our Q&A, it is meme time. All right, this meme was sent in by a viewer, and we do appreciate those who send in memes. Uh, you can email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com if you have a meme that you would like for us to answer. This one uh, is an interesting one. It says many Christian women will end up in hellfire because of putting on weave on, uh, perming hair, uh, makeup, uh, earring, trouser, lipstick, beads, chain, wedding ring, miniskirt, tight-fitting dresses, and uh, then over here, it has a list of different passages from the Old Testament and New Testament that says, please read. And then uh, the meme author lists um, all the way from Exodus to First Timothy. You have your, your famous uh, passages that deal with uh, women and how they are to behave in the assembly, how they are to uh, dress, um, their attitude and such, their outward appearance as well. 
And uh, and so we want to deal with this meme, especially since a viewer sent it in and had some questions about it. Uh, Mark Dunnigan, let's uh, let's start with you. Well, thank you, Brian. (laughs) It's going to be be in the show today. You know what? I had to look up what's Weebon because I was thinking, is that an Elton John song? Uh, And so I I even pronounce it correctly. I need to make sure I did. I I have no idea. I guess it's kind of a hairstyle. Uh, it's kind of what it is, but man, am I out of the loop. Not only that, Brian, but I would have never in my life put mini skirts and tight fitting dresses in the same category as a wedding ring. That's a surprise to me. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Brian in the comments made a good point. Hold on, Mark. Mark, we have, we have someone who says it's hair extensions. Okay. There you go. Now we know what it is. I might be looking into that later. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What do you do? Glue glue it on your head? (laughs) Yeah. You Uh, have to have something to attach it to Brian for it to work. (laughs) Um, There's a, you know, it's interesting. There's a passage here that's not mentioned. First Peter chapter three, right? Verse three, your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses but let it be the hidden person of the heart. Uh, you know, the problem, the problem, this would be a great example of how not to study the Bible. I, I mean, to me, this would be a great meme for a preacher training program of what's wrong here. That is, where did they kind of go off, off the rails? And that is that in the Bible, the emphasis is not to be on the external, but you're making a mistake to say, therefore, you can't wear a wedding ring. Um, or you can't have any makeup whatsoever, or you can't braid your hair at all. The idea is let that not be the emphasis, because if it's not that, then Peter would say you can't even wear a dress. Okay. And so uh, I'll I'll let some of the other men comment as well on this. And then I've got a comment to follow up. Well, um, let me uh, let me throw in a couple of things. I, I think there are, um, as as is always the case, there there are two kind of um, competing ideas here that we need to think about. <clears throat> if someone is sharing this to uh, blanketly condemn anyone in any of these categories, um, then that's problematic. Um, did I freeze up there for just a minute? It looked like it on my end. Okay. You froze, but not, not the video or sound. Okay. All right. Well, at any rate, um, so we want to be careful that we're not just taking a surface reading. And as, as Mark just pointed out there, there's a, a comparative element in these passages that speak of adornment versus inward and that the focus, uh, the intense focus needs to be on the inward and that the outward is only a reflection uh, of what is on the inward. So, um, as we're bringing that back to, um, you know, this meme, um, you know, the, the person here is making no accommodation for that, right? Does it, it's only focusing at that surface level. But the other thing that I want to suggest here is before we just dismiss this, I think some people would look at this and think, you know, is it so important? Is is God concerned about the particulars of what I wear? God is concerned about every single detail in your life, Amen. including the clothes that you wear. And so there are passages that certainly deal with that um, and where we reject God's guidance, you know, that, that starts out women will end up in hellfire. Women and men will end up in hellfire for one reason, 
That is when we have rejected God. And it doesn't matter on what subject that we rejected God, whether it be clothes or anything else, we will end up there because in some way, in some point in our life, we don't want God. And hell is the ultimate consequence of saying in some way, I don't want God. And, and in hell, that's exactly what you get is God completely and evermore out of your life. So we want to balance that out. Finally, one more thing to point out here is that there are some references here to Old Testament passages. Some of them get very specific. Um, and in some of those instances, we can learn and we can still glean principles. But in some of those, they were very particular to Israel and certain concerns, specific concerns God had for Israel. And so we need to make that distinction between um, what particularly applied to Israel versus principles that that remain um, that those instructions were based on. And so a lot of elements there in this meme, but the bottom line is uh, God's concerned in what's in the heart that is reflected in what we wear. And so those are important considerations, but this is entirely too simplistic um, in order to just make a blanket condemnation. Anybody who does these things is going to hell. You know, maybe add one other point. Uh, it was kind of hinted at a moment ago that this is bad biblical uh, exegesis and study. Um, it's worth considering for people that get memes like this all the time, where somebody says, this is wrong, and they throw out about 50 passages, work through the passages, go through every one of them. Because this is an argumentation style that expects you to read the first passage or two, and then just presume that the rest follow right. in sync. When in fact, a lot of these passages, and uh, both Stephen and uh, Mark McCartney have alluded to this, actually have no bearing on this conversation. They, uh, you know, they they might just mention earrings or they might just mention something, but they have absolutely no contextual point to the, ca uh, to, to the case that's being made. And that's, that's just dishonest uh, argumentation. And a lot of people use it where, um, you know, if you open up the Catholic catechism, you'll see a Catholic point, you'll see 30 verses listed to it and they'll have nothing to do with it. And so don't be deceived by looking at something like this and seeing a list of scriptures and letting that list actually uh, uh, shade or, or color your thinking on this to say, well, I read the first two and then the rest must follow. A lot of times it's bad argumentation when somebody throws up about 30 different passages. Look through them. See if that, that's what they're saying. Don't, uh, don't let somebody challenge an idea like this without actually looking and seeing what they're saying. And a lot of times, just like this, what you find is that they're, they're not being honest in how they're using the scriptures. They are twisting them to their own destruction. Brian, another passage also they fail to mention is the worthy woman of Proverbs 31. It says her clothing is fine linen and purple. And it's interesting, some of these passages here condemn women in scarlet and purple. <laughs> and I think you can see that you got a problem there if you just make that a blanket statement. I think it's like here are women that were putting all the emphasis there that are right. living in a very worldly manner. The other thing, Brian, is that Cindy and I had good friends that were kind of in a movement like this. And here's what we observed is that when you make up human rules, like no makeup whatsoever, not even a wedding ring, not a, not a bit of jewelry, whatever, that it, it the desire to look good, Brian, broke out in other ways. That is that we knew a, you would go to a restaurant and here were women that no makeup and no jewelry, whatever, but man, they, everything else though was dressed to kill <laughs> that, that it, 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 
no matter how you tried to regulate it from a human perspective. And we also ran into a group that you couldn't have a wedding ring or makeup, but you could have all the plastic surgery you wanted. And that was, or you couldn't watch television, but you could be on the internet as much as you wanted. And I think the internet at time is far, is far more dangerous. Um, just kind of an interesting thing of when you make human rules, just understand that um, that's not going to fix the problem. Great comments, guys. Uh, do we have a follow-up uh, question on this meme that we want to uh, get to here? Uh, she says, I, I know outward appearance should be modest, but a dormant isn't wrong, is it? Uh, well, well a dormant would be like wearing something. <laughs> right? I mean, you have to have some sort of adornment. Yeah, and even nice adornment. Uh, certainly, like I said, the, the scriptures are not telling us not to wear that you can't have braided hair, you can't wear jewelry. The scriptures are saying contrasting that with the 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 Christian woman focuses first and foremost on the inner self, not the outer self. She doesn't create a false shell with adornments that uh, that that then doesn't represent the the goodness of the inner person. It's a not but passage. It's not this but that. What he's trying to do is to make create a subordinate clause to describe how it is that uh, the real focus needs to be something else. The first one's not wrong. It's the second one, though, that's more important. Yeah, and to, to Mark's point, um, the, the, um, the merely in the New American Standard there of First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, it says uh, your adornment must not be merely external, external braiding the hair, wearing uh, gold jewelry and so forth, putting on dresses. So the word merely is supplied there. It would be your adornment must not be external. And included in that is putting on dresses to take that literally would mean go around naked with a good heart. Uh, obviously that's not what Peter meant. Um, and so, um, and, and to Brian's point that not, but there, it, it can't mean that. Um, and so he can't, he can't be saying, don't ever put these things on. He means for you to put these things on, but to do it in a way that does not distract. Uh, it, let me, let me point this out. Sometimes we say, don't judge a book by its cover. And then we apply that to dress and so forth. I think the exact opposite is true, that you ought to be dressing in a way uh, that is consistent with what's on the inside. And in fact, just taking that two books, when you go look at books on the shelves, I often judge, judge books by their cover. Uh, they sort of tell me what's on the inside by what's on the outside. And very often I can walk by a slew of books just by looking at what's on the outside and say, no, nope, I don't want to read that. And what Christians need to be very careful of, and I think this is what's being instructed here, is that we don't present a different picture on the outside than what's on the inside. Stephen, great point. I just hope that your comment walking around naked with a good heart is not going to start some new movement in the church that is, yeah, we're the walk around naked with a good heart people. Okay. Don't, don't do that. You guys No one. Yeah, can, I'm uh, afraid that movement's already here, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and all uh, the wrong people are in it. Okay. All right. Uh, what's the next question? Okay. So uh, first question is, see, Y'all are all muted, so nobody can hear y'all laughing. So I'm reading about Matthew 6, 24 through 34. The promise is that if God feeds the birds and we are more valuable than they are, don't you think he'll care for you too? How would you answer the fact that 
there are those in impoverished countries who are starving. Is it simply a matter of they aren't sinky God or something else? That's a good question. Who wants the first? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. yeah. Well, Brian, just one thing is that sometimes it is something else. Sometimes it is false religion. That is uh, because false ideas just don't, they, they permeate through everything. And so sometimes it is corruption from top to bottom. But Brian, you, I think you have a great observation. Well, I was just going to add, in the context that Jesus is speaking there in Matthew 6, he's talking about those who are going to seek after the kingdom of heaven. In other words, disciples, Christians. And uh, the context of Jesus's promise is that in verse 33, if we seek first the kingdom of heaven, meaning my first goal is getting to heaven and I'm putting on Christ and I'm walking the Christian life, he says all these things, what I eat, what I wear, those things are going to be added to you. So first and foremost, uh, abundantly clear. Jesus's promises are, are exclusive to his people. He's not saying, hey, the whole world, nobody's going to starve. Nobody's going to have no clothing. He's saying, my people will have this promise. Now, number two, Jesus is actually in the process of establishing the means by which that promise is, is carried out. That is the church. The New Testament, the church that is found in the New Testament is designed in large part to aid the need of saints. We can find lots of different examples and commands about that, uh, whether it's the 1 Corinthians 16 verses one and two collection that's taken up every first day of the week. That collection is for the needs of saints. Um, we see examples of churches, even churches in different locations, uh, aiding the needs of saints in other places. So that is an important consideration here. Jesus isn't just saying everybody's gonna be taken care of. He says, my people are. We know that the church that Jesus will build, uh, he has built now, but uh, at the time Jesus is saying this, that Jesus is building even then um, is going to means by which he says that. But even then, this still has conditions. We might think of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where the uh, Apostle Paul reminds the church, the Christians in Thessal Thessalonica, that if a man does not work, he does not eat. So even then... Uh, Christians have certain expectations uh, of themselves that, that they must follow through with in order for this passage to be fulfilled. It's a great question. And there is an answer, a very specific answer. It's within the context of the state. Well, and I think, Brian, it's uh, even in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven when Paul talks about all the things he had been, been through besides sleepless nights in hunger and thirst. And so I think the passage doesn't mean that no believer anywhere will ever be in hunger because even Christians go through famine and even Christians go through persecution. I think overall, overall, it would agree with the Psalm, what, Psalm 137. Um, I'm old. Uh, I've been young. Now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. I think that principle is pretty much true. Uh, but I think now and then there is an exception, particularly in times of persecution. Like if you're thrown in jail, uh, you may not have a whole lot to eat like in the first century if you were being persecuted. Stephen, you got any thought? Yeah, um, I, I think um, what you guys have already said, obviously, is um, paramount and understanding exceptions. This is, I think, a proverbial promise. And we need to understand there is a distinction between eternal, absolute promises and temporal uh, proverbial promises. Most of God's temporal promises, that is promises that involve the life here, are, are in that proverbial way. If you go back and read the Proverbs, 
then what you see is God saying, when you behave like this, here is the typical result of that behavior. Um, and that's both good and bad, right? So when you when you have the sinful behavior, here are the consequences. When you have this righteous behavior, then here are the blessings or rewards that come with that. And so you're seeing some of that here uh, in the um, Sermon on the Mount. But I would back up from that in, in Matthew chapter 4, um, leading into the Sermon on the Mount, we see the recounting of Jesus's temptations. And notice the very first temptation, Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. And the first temptation is that he would start turn these stones into bread. And Jesus's response is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy there, which is in turn, Moses's instruction about the people, what they should have learned from the manna that God provided in the wilderness. And what we want to take away from that, um, response from Jesus. Here he is very hungry um, and, and has an opportunity to, to get bread uh, by miraculous means, by, by whatever means he wants to get bread. Jesus at this point has received that instruction from Satan, but he has not received that instruction from God. And what Jesus's response here is, I believe, is I would rather die than to act outside God's authority. I, I will find satisfaction. I will find my ultimate satisfaction in God himself and not in bread. So if someone is truly seeking the kingdom of God, there is a proverbial promise. I'll take care of you. Just like I take care of the birds and the flowers. But birds die, flowers wither. Those things do happen. And while we have those examples, we understand that, that there still are birds that starve uh, and there are flowers that do not get the nutrients they need and they die away. It is, it is God's typical care. At the end of the day, though, that we're looking at Jesus' example there in, in addition to that promise that says, I will cling to him with my last starving, dying breath and I will still find what I need. So kingdom seekers, yes, you'll be provided for. We can, we can have confidence in that. But the greater confidence still is the promise that, uh, that cannot be taken away. There are no exceptions uh, to that promise. Amen. Excellent thoughts. Something I want to share, too. I know, I, know, I know I'm just the host. I'm not supposed to talk. But anyway, um, in Matthew chapter 6, as well as in Luke 12, and then in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I noticed how Jesus was saying, and Paul was saying, you know, store up treasure in heaven, not on earth where it can be destroyed. And that section comes right before Matthew chapter six, verse 24 and following, excuse me. And well, according to first Timothy chapter six, and then in, in, in Luke's account that uh, Jesus includes sharing what you have with others. And so I think it's interesting in a passage where Jesus says here in Matthew six, do not worry about these things attach that teaching in other passages, share what you have abundance of or share with others who are in need. And, um, and so I just think that's kind of an interesting connection there of, of don't worry, but share what you have. So anyway, just want to throw that in there, but I think uh, Stephen, you hit the nail on the head on that one uh, as well as, uh, as well as Brian and Mark there. Okay. Our next question here. Um, would you please explain first Corinthians six verse three? Do you, not know that we will judge the angels. Does that mean that all Christians will judge angels or is this hyperbolic or 
hyperbole. Hyperbole. There we go. Uh, who wants that one? Mark, you want to take us off? You know, it's in the context of Christians taking other Christians to court before unbelievers. And I think the argument is, wait a minute, you guys, you have the truth. Uh, you have God's wisdom. You have everything you need. You have the scriptures. Y you are competent. You should be competent to handle these disagreements among themselves. And then he points out, oh, by the way, you're going to judge the world. And then he says, you're going to judge angels. The way I've always taken this, I haven't taken this that we're going to be up there with Jesus, uh, you might say, sitting on his throne and issuing proclamations to where angels go in eternity. I think the idea is that our godly life, our godly life basically condemns both the ungodly of this world and the angels that sinned. Um, uh, particularly with the angels that sin, they they saw God, they heard God, they were with God. That that's not true for any of us Christians. We haven't seen God face to face and heard the word of God from God itself, and yet we still obey Him. And by contrast, our life definitely condemns. Uh, they had greater privileges and squandered them, and uh, that's the way I would kind of take the passage. But I'd like to hear some thoughts from Stephen and Brian as well. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it is, um, I, again, uh, as Mark pointed out, the context, it, all, all of this, whatever it's it's saying is to um, kind of wake people up uh, to the notion that they are taking what are ultimately petty grievances um, before a, a court of law, a, a secular court of law or civil, um, you know, the, I, and I think it is a matter of scale. We're talking about eternal judge, you know, matters of eternal importance where we are set in this position and then we we can't figure out how to settle uh, very temporal, very temporary uh, disputes. Um, I think the word judgment here, you know, um, just as Mark pointed out, there is a sense in which judgment is like we are we are proclaiming we are, you know, taking this into consideration and then we're deciding what happens and so forth. I think it's judgment uh, sort of by comparison uh, judge. So here is a life lived that puts into judgment uh, another life lived. Um, this is the way in which Jesus refers back to um, the, the people of the, the Gentiles who are throughout the Old Testament story, who heard and received God's word, the centurions uh, in the time of Jesus who hear and receive the truth that they end up judging unfaithful Israel, not because they proclaimed a judgment, but rather uh, by comparison, they have that judgment. So I think the idea here is you have the truth. You, you are children of God through, through discernment, through judgment, through discernment of eternal truths and adherence to those that will put uh, in relief, in contrast, put to judgment the rest of the world who rejects those truths and even angels who have rejected that truth. Can't you figure out how to settle a dispute over money? Um, and, and so you see, it's just, it's sort of like talking about magnificent and eternal realities. And then it says, oh, somebody owes you $5. What, what is the problem here? Um, and so uh, I think that helps us understand that and, and, and helps us not take it too far into some kind of um, maybe fantastical notions of, of some scene of us sitting on 
you know, actual, you know, with a gavel or something, uh, pronouncing judgment on angels. All right. Great, great comments there. All right. Next question. Uh, another live question. How do you properly end a fast with prayer or just after the time period for the designated fast you eat? Are there scriptures that explain how God wants this to be done? I guess we should uh, distinguish and obvious, it's obvious from the question, but this is a, in a religious sense of a fast in a religious sense compared to a, an intermittent fasting or as such. Um, Obviously, if you're prolonged fasting, you don't want to end with the cheeseburger. Um, and uh, so how do you properly end a, a fast? Well, in a religious sense, yes, with the prayer. But any other thoughts on that, guys? You know, it's interesting, Brian. Fasting in the Bible is very unregulated. As far as I can tell, there was only one commanded fast in the entire Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus does talk about that when he would leave, his disciples would fast. But other than that, I really can't find any specific regulation on it. It's almost like fasting is so individual and built to specific individual circumstances. We're not told length of time. We're not told, like, is it a complete absence of all food or liquid or whatever? And so it's basically you you start it, you end it, you determine the length of it. Basically, the need that you're going through is that it looks like it's in one of those areas that believers are given quite a bit of individual flexibility. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, I agree with that. Anyone else? No. Well, let me, let me just throw this in there. There, there are two reasons that are given for fasting in the scriptures. One is focus and the other is mourning. Um, and so, um, some of that, um, you know, some of that will dictate uh, how you begin, how long, when to end. And I think that's the idea. And I think one of the problems is that Pharisees uh, and other hypocritical religious leaders had uh, done the very, very thing which the Bible did not do, which is to regulate fasting and to make it into uh, a ceremonial aspect. God wanted their fasting, um, but he didn't want it the way they were offering it. He wanted it to be genuine genuine sorrow yes that comes with with the the renting of clothes and uh ashes and so forth but he didn't want to show uh they went around and fasting and of course you see in matthew chapter six they they made sure to exaggerate the effects of the fasting so that other people would praise them that loses all uh benefit and value so uh depending on what what reason you're fasting for that's going to determine how long it's going to determine what you do during that fasting. And of course it may even determine uh, the manner in which you end that fasting. I might just point to David as an example in second uh, Samuel, second uh, Samuel chapter 12 and following there where David is given the, the, uh, the judgment that his uh, child would die. And he, he fasted and he mourned the loss of that child as he prayed for um, God to relent on that punishment. When it, uh, when that um, did not happen, when the child did die, it says he arose and he washed himself and he ate. Um, And so basically once the calls for the fasting had passed, then so did everything that went along with it. And he got up and did all the things that you would normally, he went back to life, in its normal fashion. Um, and so I think that's what the idea is, is this is a break from what's normal. And then you come back to what is normal. Good thoughts. And I mean, as already established, prayer is always good to end with for any 
anything you're doing. So, all right. Our next question that we have here, and we've got another, well, okay, we'll take this one. Um, I, I saw this question come up today. Uh, is there potential for saving grace for those who are truly committed to serving God, but do not follow the path most churches of Christ teach as the biblical path? Could God save those COC folks, as Church of Christ folks, uh, consider uh, on the wrong path, such as those in Bible-believing denominations? Or does the Bible clearly disallow that? All right, that's an interesting question. Brian, what you got? So, uh, you know, I always like to say, it's a great question. It's a great question. I don't like this question. Let me, uh, let me kind of pick apart the question for a second. And uh, by the way, questioner, I do appreciate that you ask us this. Um, but let me just say that... Just, just the destroy problem, all our viewers, Brian. I, that's right. That's right. No, I, I uh, just want to be honest to say the question uh, seems to infer the idea that there's a distinction between Church of Christ doctrine and biblical doctrine. In other words, uh, you know, the idea that uh, the idea of churches of Christ teaches the biblical path, a, a genuine church that belongs to Christ. Not and, and and let's be honest, not all churches that call themselves Church of Christ do. We, we would all appreciate and agree with that. Uh, but a genuine church that seeks to belong to Christ. There is no distinction between what it teaches and what Jesus teaches or what it teaches and what the Bible teaches. Um, so so to say, you know, the idea of a, of a teaching of a church of Christ, it ought to be a teaching of the Bible. Um, so I would say rewrite the question. Let's say, is there a potential for saving grace for those who are truly committed to serving God, but do not follow the path Jesus teaches as the biblical path? Um Let's ask that question instead, because as I said, a Church of Christ, if it genuinely seeks to be Christ's church and uh, is genuinely pursuing those things, it shouldn't be teaching anything Jesus isn't teaching. So can you be saved outside of Jesus's path? You know, I would think a passage like John 14 would would be a good answer where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the light. No one gets to the Father but by me. Is it possible God's grace would reach, you know, outside of that? Well, I was, by the way, uh, I'm going to give an ambiguous answer here. I always point to Romans 9:15, where God says, "I'll have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy." That's that's His judgment. Uh, he'll decide to what degree, you know, He'll do these things. But it's important for us to understand that we're really, uh, we really don't want to allow ourselves to think of church doctrine being different than Jesus's doctrine. Um, the church doesn't teach anything. It it instead takes what Jesus has taught and makes it its own. And that's the way it ought to be. So uh, rewriting the question a little bit, it becomes a little more uh, pointed to the idea, can you be saved without following what Jesus said? And I think the answer to that is probably a little easier to come to. Well, and also, Brian, what's a Bible-believing denomination? Uh, if you, uh, th There are a number of religious people. There are a number of denominations that they would claim that they're Bible-believing. Okay, but do they practice what it says? Because if you practice what the Bible says, you're not going to have a denomination because you can't read about any denominations in the Bible. I think Jesus addressed this in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? There, there's Bible-believing people, and I will decl declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who work lawlessness. Um, I know a number of 
people that claim they believe the Bible and they're in the denomination, but they will argue until the cows come home that baptism is not necessary for salvation. And that's exactly opposite of what Jesus taught. Um, they could be covered. To me, the answer there in Matthew 7 is an absolute no. <laughs> There's the answer. Stephen, you got a thought there. I mean, it, it, like Brian uh, said, just, just turning the question around. Um, when somebody says, can you be saved in this way? Um, I, I only have God's words. He's, he's the judge. I'm not the judge. And so uh, you have the words that will judge you in that day, Jesus says. So, um, you know, I'm just looking here and somebody says, can you be saved another way? Well, wh what other way? What, what are the books? Um, you know, sh show me what you're talking about. And, and it, 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 it should be such a simple concept. Here's God saying, this is how you approach me. This is how you, uh, this is how you are saved. Uh, any other path is, is outside of this. And so, um, you know, will there be saving grace? Uh, if there is, it'll be some way God hadn't told me about. Appreciate those comments there. I do like this uh, live comment here. It says, I would simply answer God will save those who do his will as found in his word. And, you know, I, I got to say about the COC folks. And I mean, there they are going to be those who are sitting on the pew who are there every Sunday who will be lost. I mean, uh, because they're not doing the will of the father. All right. Appreciate the uh, question there. Our next question that we have. Here it is. Go ahead. What did you have? Well, you know, some of the question is, of, well, how much can I deviate? And I think that's a terrible, horrible question. Have we learned nothing from Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10, how the ark was carried, 2 Samuel 6, Saul's uh, ad-lib sacrifice for Samuel 15, uh, the lie of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, or Galatians 1. As far as I can see there, Brian, those Christians, they still believed in Jesus, the Bible, baptism and yet what they wanted to do let's add a little bit of the law of moses in for some flavoring and that message condemned you Ooh, i'm always comfortable with how far can i walk away from what the bible says and still make a bad plan bad plan right all right next question uh, should i pray for a man with no legs to grow new ones or for a man born blind to be healed or should i only play, pray for someone to get better that has a cold that's an interesting question what you got? I, well, I'll just I'll just say this right off the bat. I think in, in every case uh, of ailment, what we need to be praying for above all else is that they will learn to see God and bless God in that infirmity. Um, I think that's far more important uh, than the, the healing. Now, um, as to, um, you know, a man with no legs to grow new ones, in that particular case, what we'd be praying for is a miracle. Now, I don't think it's wrong to, to pray for some um, even great thing, um, but we, you know, we've established we're past the time for miracles. Um, and if we need to establish that again, we can, but, but we've established that. And so I think that there's a difference in praying for the miraculous uh, versus praying for um, what is providential. Uh, and what can be done in a providential manner. So I would categorize these a little bit differently here, uh, you know, growing new legs uh, versus someone with a cold. 
But again, I, I would say I think sometimes we focus too much on the healing and not not as much as we need to on the spiritual uh, growth that can and needs to uh, happen. And I would say even this, when Jesus healed, the spiritual lesson he taught was more important than the healing itself. Um, and, and we need to learn that even when we're looking at him healing um, and then add that into our prayers as, as we're praying for, for people in their various uh, conditions. Let me say it a little differently, uh, but a similar thought. The word of God tells us we're praying for the will of God. Uh, God's will should be done in all things. Um, and if if we are talking about a miraculous intercession by God, God's will is that that is over. Uh, God's will is that those things would pass away. First Corinthians 13 tells us that. So to, you know, to some degree, and as Stephen said, you know, it's the idea of saying, you know, we, we certainly can ask all things, but we have to always have a context of praying within the will of God. And, and that means understanding the will of God. That means understanding things like God doesn't, you know, doesn't seek to work through miracles anymore. God set up a laws of nature uh, with the intent that they should, you know, progress and move forward. And, you know, we can discern that that's not necessarily what God's will is. But what if tomorrow technology comes out and they can grow a leg? You know, you can, people born blind can have surgeries today that might correct that sometimes. Um, that's no less the great power of God than if it was a miracle. Sometimes we kind of put down uh, God's great providence in the way that he works. And we just kind of think, well, yeah, that was, you know, somebody somebody had a cold. Let's say not a cold. Let's say they had COVID. They had pneumonia, life-threatening. Um, I prayed. They recovered. Was that really God? Of course it was. Um, and, and we give God the glory on those kinds of circumstances. And so it's important for us to understand uh, that, first of all, we're praying within the will of God. Second of all, God's will is that he would work through providence. So we're, you know, fundamentally, that's our pursuit. And third of all, that when things do come about, we want to give God the glory. As to Stephen's point, Brian, in John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus told the man that, did he, he, that he healed that was lame, um, he says, behold, you have become well, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. That there was also like, hey, okay, you're back to a healthy life, but guess what? That's not your biggest challenge. You need to live a godly life because there are people that, there were people that were healed in the Bible that walked away and gave no gratitude and just started living their life again. And uh, it's the, uh, yeah, I like Stephen's point is that our, the greater concern is that this person ends up saved in the end, not just physically healthy. Appreciate those comments. Our next Bible question that we have today, why is love said to be greater than faith or hope in 1 Corinthians 13 and in verse 13? Interestingly enough, if you missed it, we did a Bible study last night on Keeping My Head on Straight that airs every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on 1 Corinthians 13. So why is love said to be greater than faith or hope in 1 Corinthians 13? In the context, he's talking about the things that are going to be passing away, the things that are going away. Uh, ultimately, when Jesus returns, uh, when his kingdom is taken back and returned to the Father, our faith, that is the substance of things we hope for, the evidence of things not seen, will no longer be in place because what we seek will have been achieved. Our hope will be fulfilled, so we'll have no hope. But love remains. So that would be why love is seen as the greatest of these things, because it will abide 
uh, even after faith and hope are dismissed. I'm not sure also if there's an element here going back to the first part of First Corinthians about motivation is that almost undergirding even faith and hope is, I mean, you can have a conviction for something. You can have faith or a conviction about something, and it seems to be completely unrelated to God or love or whatever. It almost seems to that the underlying motive, a love for God, um, has to undergird the faith and hope for it to be like meaningful. That's just a thought I have as well. Anyone else? Okay. All right. Uh, next question. Could the rod in Proverbs 13, 24 be seen with the lens of shepherd imagery? If so, would this not better align with New Testament commands on raising children like Ephesians 6, 4 and 1 Timothy 5, 8? All right. I wonder what the intentions are of this question. Well, let me let me uh, briefly state the answer is no. Um <laughs> If you look through the book of Proverbs, that word rod is used, um, well, just repeatedly. And so beginning in uh, verse uh, chapter 10 and verse 13, on the lips of the discerning wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. That's not talking about a gentle shepherd's rod. The idea, I think, with this question, I've heard this taught before, is that, you know, you've got a shepherd who gently uses his rod and staff to you know, to move along, to press along. And so it's kind of a more of a nurturing. And I appreciate that we ought to be nurturing, but we're nurturing along and so forth. Um, but um, as you look at other instances, Proverbs 23, 13 makes it even more um, clear. Do not withhold, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. We are talking about um, a disciplinary usage or or even a corporal usage of a rod uh, for discipline, something that you are hitting someone with. Um, so that is what's being talked about uh, is is a um, I, I, I hesitate to say weapon, but you're using an instrument and you are striking someone with that instrument. Uh, now, it doesn't it, obviously we want age appropriate things and, and all of those sorts. And we want to use to implement that in a way that even the Proverbs would say is loving and with a goal in mind. Right. An instructive goal in mind. Um, but I would say, you know, as to the comment about the New Testament, as to harmonizing that with the idea, all discipline should be instructive. I think that's the problem, really. In our minds, we think that it's that it's punitive. Well, it is. It is punitive, but with a mindset of instruction. Right. I, I never want to just lash out at my children. I don't want to just hit them because they're on my nerves or something of that nature. But I want to in the thought process of here's what I, I think. I've got a, a three year old at home right now. And what I want in the case with him is in some way to associate uh, in his mind the things that he ought not to be doing with pain. Right. That's that's what I want to teach him. This will always bring you pain. And the more I can connect that in his mind, whether it be through the rod, whether it be through uh, loss of privileges, whatever, you're going to lose when you behave this way. And that is because I love him. 
And I want him to learn the self-control that says, I don't want this. I do want this path. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, suffer when I go down this path. I'm going to be blessed when I go down this path. That's really Proverbs, right? In a, in a nutshell, that's what Proverbs is saying. Blessings down this path, uh, pain down this path. Um, and so that's what the rod instructs and it, and it, it's, it's not always a very gentle looking thing. Um, and the same is true with us. It's not always a gentle looking thing when God instructs us, but it's always for our good. Well, and I think, I think the realization, Brian, is because there's a number of people like, ooh, I don't want, okay, I don't want to do that. All right, the world will. The world will do it without mercy. And so your offspring, you're, they're going to get the rod one way or another. <laughs> and, and their minds will get it from someone connected with a purpose and instruction and et cetera, because the child who is left to himself brings shame and has a really difficult life for the rest of their life. You know, the New Testament tells us these things too. It's not as though uh, it's merely the Old Testament, although the book of Proverbs is fantastic for a conversation about how to rear your children. I remind us of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, where we're reminded there, verse six, the look for those whom the Lord loves, he chastens, uh, scourges every son whom he receives. Scourges. Uh, what are we just trying to say? We're trying to say physical discipline, in a sense, is what he's trying to describe. He goes on to say, we had human fathers who corrected us. We paid him respect. Shall we not know it much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Um, the New Testament would want us to understand that discipline and even physical corrective discipline is important. Now, I think Stephen just gave us a, a nugget there. Uh, not to say Mark didn't, but uh, Stephen said something really important about what it is, the attitude of discipline. And I and I kind of would add to that that the image is that physical discipline brought about in anger probably isn't really discipline. Um, you know, the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, we're told. And I think a lot of times that's the uh, that's the fine line that might need to be considered. Am I disciplining for correction, which, as Stephen said, is really the purpose? Or am I disciplining because of anger? And if so, then I'm not doing it properly. Um, that would really be the big point to consider. Not the idea of whether or not I'm using a rod, striking. Um, all of those things are biblically acceptable, you know, to uh, to correct but it's not acceptable to do so in anger. It's not acceptable uh, in wrath. Uh, it, it, what we're doing is we're doing so in nurture and admonition. And I think that that really needs to be a key characteristic to understand the nature of physical discipline as it's given in the scriptures. Well, and Brian, there's one other thing. I think people maybe who have never been shepherds, <laughs> it's a she I don't think the shepherd's out there going, ooh, ooh, ooh. I think the shepherd gave a thump on the rump now and then to some sheep, okay? So this idea of the ooh, I, I see too many parents in the store. Ooh, ooh. Okay, that's not what's going on here. That's my 10 cents for today. Oh, man. I need to clip that video of you going, woo. All right. Uh, that's all for today, folks. Uh, we are done. Any last minute comments, guys? All right. Appreciate you being on the, uh, the show today and giving your wisdom and comments on those questions to the audience back home, listening, viewing us. Appreciate it so much. Uh, sending your questions in and tuning in and supporting the show by liking and sharing the video. We do appreciate that. We do want to quickly give you a rundown of all the 
shows that you can tune into for additional Bible studies. That starts on Monday with Bob's Bible Basics. That is every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern time with our brother Bob. He was not on today, but uh, he has just a show that he just deals with the basics of the Bible. So if that is something that interests you, maybe you are new to the scriptures, uh, maybe you just want to go back and relearn the foundational things, then tune into Bob's Bible Basics. On Tuesdays is Keeping My Head On Straight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That airs on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as Bob's Bible Basics does on Facebook and YouTube. And uh, that is every Tuesday, Keeping My Head On Straight. It is a show that helps uh, Christians to overcome the world, to be thinking right, to have the right perspective. And so you can tune in every Tuesday for that. Wednesdays is the live Bible Q&A. Uh, that's every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. If you have a Bible question, email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com. Private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiouserror. If you do comment on the video, we encourage you to comment on our YouTube video or the Facebook page video. If you comment on a shared video that you just see shared on Facebook, we have a lot of shares. We may not see your question or comment. If we have not answered your question, it's been a couple of weeks. That's probably the case. So you'll need to email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com or private message us, facebook.com slash answeringreligiouserror. Then on Thursdays is Older Women Likewise. It's a show for women by women. They have a Bible study every Thursday, 8 p.m. on YouTube and on Facebook and podcast. And so if that is something that interests you, then I encourage you to check that out. And then lastly, Monday through Friday with Mark Dunnigan is the Daily Answer. It is weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern time. That's when the episode drops. And you can listen to it on the way to work while you're getting ready for work throughout the day. It is Monday through Friday. Mark Dunnigan has the daily answer. And so if that is something that interests you, we'd encourage you to find him on podcast. You can search for the daily answer or answering religious error. It is on all major plot platforms, podcast platforms. However, if there is a podcast that you use that you cannot find us, let us know so we can make sure we can uh, put the show on there. So we're uh, be able to reach out everywhere uh, that uh, podcasts are found. Again, that is the daily answer. And then also our Tuesday night and Wednesday night shows are on podcast immediately after the show. They are uploaded. So if you're not able to catch us live on video, you can listen to us via audio only. That's all the announcements that I have for today. Appreciate you tuning in. We'll be back here next Tuesday with Keeping My Head On Straight here on Answering Religious Error.